the prime obligation of every human being is to speak out against injustice. We are our brother's keeper. You're listening to The Keeper, brought to you by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. I'm Katrina Lantos-Sweat. Thank you for joining us for this, the third episode of our special Solidarity Sabbath season. So far this season has brought you interviews with a leading scholar of anti-Judaism and with America's top diplomat tasked with monitoring and combating anti-Semitism. But in this episode, you'll hear something quite different. Could such a sweeping villainy ever happen again? If people lose the will to fight evil, yes, it can happen again. What you just heard is my late father, the Lantos Foundation's namesake, Tom Lantos, speaking to an interviewer on the Jewish TV network. They are, of course, speaking about the Holocaust, or Shoah in Hebrew, the World War II genocide of six million European Jews. This was unequivocally the most extreme and horrific example of anti-Semitism the world has ever seen. When we talk about the horrors of this time, it is common to use the phrase never again as a sign of our shared commitment to ensure that such a thing will never again come to pass. One of the most powerful ways to reinforce this commitment is through hearing and absorbing the stories of those who survived the Holocaust and can bear firsthand witness to its brutality, atrocity, and inhumanity. I recently had the privilege of speaking with two of Tom's fellow survivors of the Holocaust, who both also happened to have been born and spent their childhoods in his native Hungary before eventually coming to America, his beloved adopted homeland. Ervin Rodin was born in Budapest in 1932, just a few years after Tom. He said that even before the Nazis invaded Hungary in 1944, he experienced violent anti-Semitism from his fellow Hungarians. Not once and not twice, we were fell upon and being beaten up by other kids from other schools who could tell who we are because of the emblems in our heads. In the summer of 1944, Ervin, his mother and brother, were taken to a so-called Yellow Star House, part of a network of nearly 2,000 apartment buildings to which Jews in Budapest were forcibly removed. His father was taken first to a forced labor camp, but later died while marching to the Mauthausen concentration camp. My mother also was taken away and was put into a train to get into Auschwitz together with my aunt, her sister. And uh, as it turned out, she was not a strong woman at all, but it turned out that the strain itself had a very bad flooring and it was possible to pull up one of the pieces of wood and some of the women, maybe some of the men, were able to escape during one of the breaks while the train was waiting. My mother and my aunt came out of the train, and in three days they walked back to Hungary, to Budapest. After much searching, Ervin's mother was able to reunite with her children, and they spent the rest of the war hiding with a Christian family who they paid to shelter them. Ervin went on to live much of his life in Israel, 
and eventually settled in St. Louis, where he has been actively involved in activities related to Holocaust remembrance. Kati Preston, the second survivor I had the chance to speak with, was born in Transylvania, which is today part of Romania. I survived the Holocaust by being hidden in an attic by uh, the woman who used to bring our milk. When they were rounding up the Jews in the ghetto, my mother decided to hide me. My mother was not Jewish. My mother was Catholic. My father was Jewish. Mm -hmm. And although my mother converted, she didn't have to go to the camp because they considered you Jew by blood, not by religion. And so she was exempt, and she decided to keep me at home, hoping that they wouldn't notice one little girl missing. And then this woman came and told my mother, listen, I know, I know that uh, the rounding up the Jews and you were so good to me. The woman had been an orphan and my mother made her a beautiful wedding dress for her wedding a few years before this. She came to see my mother and she said to my mother, listen, I'll hide the child. She'll be safe in my farm. And wow. she hid me in this little tiny attic full of hay. And I had to be there on my own with nobody for three months. I was five years old. And when you think today, you know, I raised four sons. I don't think they sat still for their whole lives. Yeah, I suppose when you're about to be killed, you take it seriously. And they came looking for me because somebody had told the authorities that I wasn't in the ghetto. And they tortured my mother. She didn't tell them where I was, but they came looking for me. And they were sticking their bayonets in the hay. I scooched under the hay and under the eaves, like the woman told me. And I made myself really, really small. But I was afraid because my heartbeat was so loud. I was afraid they would hear it. I shut my eyes thinking, maybe if I don't see them, you know, like it's a normal reaction. And then suddenly I heard a footstep next to my head. And I looked up and there was a big black boot and then the bayonet came down about an inch from my cheek and it got stuck in the wood. And then he pulled it out and they left. I couldn't believe it, you know, and I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand up for about a day. My legs were like jelly. And I was very quiet after that. I did believe the woman that somebody wanted to kill me. And, you know, the idea of somebody trying to kill you at that age is very unnerving. And it's not realistic because even today I'm 81 and I'm very close to death, but I kind of ignore it. Death happens to other people, you know. And when you're a kid, you don't believe in death. And I couldn't understand why these people are trying to stick a knife in my head. Kati's mother had managed to smuggle her father out of the Jewish ghetto. But at one point, he decided to come back to say goodbye to his beloved daughter. He was very close to me. I was daddy's little girl, an only child. And he wanted to say goodbye to me and to explain to me that it's, it's a temporary thing and he's not leaving me and he will come back. My mother tried to dissuade him, but no good. And he came and he walked to the farm late at night and they caught him at the entrance of the farm and deported him the next day. He ended up in Auschwitz and my stepfather saw him die. What happened is a man and my father stole a piece of bread because they were starving and they were found out and the camp commander decided to make an example of them. So they stripped both of them naked, and 
out in the Appellplatz, where people used to have to congregate every morning to be counted, and this was cold. They stripped them naked and beat them half to death with iron bars and sticks, broke all their bones, and put each of these two men in a dog cage so that people would see them every day and they would learn from this not to steal. And it took my father two days and a night to die. And I became a very sick sort of child because I spent my youth wanting revenge. I had visions and, and fantasies of what I would do to these people if I could catch them because they killed my daddy. And I had these very sick revenge dreams, you know, which is not normal for a little girl. Little girls should think about princesses and fairy tales. All I could think of is torturing. And it took me 50 years to stop hating. I don't hate anymore. I filled my soul with love instead of hatred. No, I don't forgive because I don't have the right to forgive somebody else's death. I can only forgive things that have been done to me. But I am full of love and I'm a very happy person. Despite the terror and tragedy that marred her childhood, Kati has an unbreakable spirit and an unshakable faith in the humanity of her fellow men and women. She can trace the origins of this spirit all the way back to a memorable episode from her childhood. I was in school at this point in Romania, you know, and because I spoke Romanian, the Hungarian kids beat me and the, the Romanian kids beat me because I was Hungarian and everybody beat me because I was Jewish. Plus I was a smart one and I always had my hand up with answers. I was obnoxious, obviously. And I was walking home with two long braids and one of the boys cut off one of my braids and I was holding my shorn braid crying, walking down the road. And an old man came up to me and he says, little girl, stop crying, go home, cut off the other braid. You'll still look very pretty and that hair will grow back. And if you let these people get to you like this, they win. Don't let them win. Don't don't, don't be sad because if you are sad and if they break you, they win. Don't let them win. You're better than that. Go home and look pretty. That's what I always tell children as well. I said, don't let the bullies get to you. The minute you let them get to you, they win. And I feel that I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor. It's a big difference. I'm proud to be a survivor and I would be very ashamed to be a victim because it's a sign of giving up, a sign of weakness, if you like, and I can't afford that. After the Holocaust, Kati went on to live a full, adventurous life. She lived in Israel, Italy, Portugal, Paris, London, and eventually America, and she had several successful careers along the way. But you know, the only thing that really, really gives me meaning and happiness is what I do now. I go to schools and I speak against prejudice and against hatred. I tell them about my childhood experience and I relate it to bullying and to what's going on today. As part of this work, Kati has worked with legislators in New Hampshire, where she currently lives, to introduce a bill, House Bill 1135, that mandates Holocaust and genocide prevention education in public schools. This bill recently passed the New Hampshire legislature and was signed into law by Governor Chris Sununu in late July, making New Hampshire the 14th state to require such education. 
Massachusetts has been trying to pass something like this for 10 years. I had a lot of disagreement from the Jewish Federation who wanted to make it exclusively Holocaust-based. And I said, no, it has to be Holocaust and genocide-based. I know our Holocaust is the biggest one, but we cannot own the suffering totally. We have to share it. It's a privilege to share our hatred and tragedy. But on the other hand, other people are suffering too. There are genocides going on now. There was the Armenian genocide that nobody talked about. We have to share. We have to share the burden. And because we had the word genocide allied to Holocaust, that stopped some of the critics and some of the naysayers. At the federal level, the House and Senate have also passed the Never Again Education Act with overwhelming bipartisan support. This act furthers Holocaust education across the country by bolstering the educational resources at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Kati says that this current moment in America, where people of all backgrounds have risen up to protest the killing of George Floyd, systemic racism, and prejudice in many forms, gives her great hope for the future of her adopted homeland. When you look at these people, look at the diversity of these demonstrators. I mean, it's almost like a soul thing. Everybody's soul is answering. I'm very hopeful. I'm very, very hopeful. Because I've had this thing that this generation will change the world. I had that feeling, but I didn't know when. And I was worried that nobody's demonstrating. The only way things happen is when people convulse and demonstrate. You don't get anything happening if you sit back, oh, like the good Germans who didn't say anything. You've got to participate. I understand that as a Jew, if you don't stand up, then you're guilty, especially as a Jew, because they try to lynch me. And here, by the grace of God and luck, that bayonet missed me by an inch. Had it not missed me, I would have been that man. I would have been a dead child, just like he's a dead man. And that unites us. Victimhood unites us and fighting back unites us. And I think it's our responsibility as a Jew to stand up for this and to stand up against prejudice of any sort. The one thing that I find that all Holocaust survivors' children have, and you must have this as well, well, it's like throwing a pebble in a lake and the concentric circles keep going outwards and you're touched by this. Whether you like it or not, you're part of this and your children are part of this and possibly their children will be part of this. It's this thing that unites us, this pebble. And I'm sure that if you're a child of a survivor, you're a different person. I recognize so well exactly what Kati describes here. It is a sense of survivor's duty to never forget, but also survivor's privilege. It is indeed a privilege to have the responsibility to, in my father's words, never rest in the fight against anti-Semitism and against any form of prejudice or injustice. Kati's fearless work to tear down the walls built by prejudice and hate have yielded the most beautiful results in her personal life and within her own family. I have four granddaughters, and they range from half African-American, half Mexican, half Chinese, and I even have a half German one. 
And when my eldest son came to me and told me he's marrying this wonderful Canadian actress, and I said, oh, wonderful. And he says, well, there's a slight problem. I said, how can there be a problem? I said, well, her father was in the Wehrmacht. So I swallowed, and I swallowed again. And I thought, no, we don't visit the sins of the father on the children. When their little girl was born, I remember holding this beautiful child in my arms and thinking, this is a grandchild of a perpetrator and a victim. And this is right. This is how it has to be. We have to go forward because this child will help me close the circle and eliminate hatred. These two individuals you've heard from today, Kati and Erwin, lived through horrors that most of us could not even fathom. And yet, like my father, they somehow emerged from that time with their spirits unbroken and with a deep sense of their responsibility to ensure that such horrors never happen again. It was this same spirit that defined my father and ultimately shaped him into the human rights champion that inspires the Lantos Foundation's work today. Perhaps he put it best himself in his interview years ago with the Jewish TV network. Once you learn that there is so much to do, which in a modest little way can leave this planet slightly better, less evil, less selfish, less monstrous, then you gain enormous energy to keep moving on. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Keeper. And I hope you'll check back in to hear upcoming episodes from our Solidarity Sabbath podcast season. Make sure to subscribe to The Keeper on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way you won't miss anything. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please do leave a review to let us and others know what you think. I'm Katrina Lanto-Sweat, and thank you for listening to The Keeper. This episode of The Keeper was produced and recorded by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. To support our work and for more information on today's topic, visit us at www.lantosfoundation.org.